Good morning, everyone. I'm John Herbst. I'm the president and CEO of the Indiana Historical Society, and it's my privilege to be the chair of the host committee for the 2009 annual meeting. The host committee has had a lot of fun preparing and planning for your week in Indianapolis, and we hope that you feel that the red carpet of our city has been rolled out for you. Uh, the host committee members are listed on page five of your program book, and I want to ask you if you'd give them a round of applause for all the hard work they've done this last year in getting ready for you. Thank you. We were worried, of course, during the last nine months that, about the effect of the economy on attendance, and I think that all of you deserve a special commendation for uh, coming out and coming together like this in, in spite of the serious uh, financial constraints that institutions of every size are going through and, of course, all of us individuals involved with those organizations. And in light of these challenging times, we particularly appreciate the support of our various sponsors for the annual meeting. They are listed on page three, and they've been shown up on the slide there. All of them have contributed resources for putting on the annual meeting. We especially appreciate the cash contributions that the 1772 Foundation and the History Channel have made. And a big thanks from the host committee goes to Lilly Endowment here in Indianapolis for the $30,000 grant that they provided us to underwrite the costs of the day tours and all the evening events at the various venues. Uh, it's safe to say that the actual cost of all of those things would have been doubled at least, and we're very grateful to the Lilly Endowment for making all of those events affordable for you, for you to participate in. Uh, the theme of the annual meeting is uh, making history a 21st century enterprise. And I, I think as you tour our history, museums, historic sites and organizations and get to know Indy, you'll find that this is a place of innovation and teamwork and world-class examples of our genre of cultural institutions, from the President Benjamin Harrison home, the Children's Museum of Indianapolis, the largest children's museum in the world, the Idle George Museum and the State Museum, which we visited last night, and, the, um, and Connor Prairie, which is uh, always in a pioneering mode as far as our field is concerned. I just want to say I regret that the Indiana Historical Society is undergoing major renovations and we weren't able to have any large events there. We won't reopen until March, uh, but our library is still open if you want to go over and take a peek. But you'll get a sense of some of the our innovation and uh, new ways that we're going to be sharing our collections with audiences through uh, new visitor experiences um, through the panels and presentations that some of our staff are giving this week. Uh, this would be a good time to silence your cell phones, and I just want to let you know that we're delighted that um, the uh, proceedings this morning are being filmed by C-SPAN. So it's now my honor to introduce our keynote speaker. Harold Holzer is the Senior Vice President for External Affairs at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. He also serves as co-chairman of the United States Abraham Lincoln Bicentennial Commission, to which he was appointed by President Clinton. He is the author, co-author, or editor of 33 books on Lincoln and the Civil War. I had all of the names of these books originally in my introduction. However, I, I've decided just to mention three uh, that we're going to be selling at a table outside and that um, there'll be an author signing immediately after the presentation. So among his latest books are Lincoln, President-Elect, Abraham Lincoln and the Great Secession Winter, 1860 to 1861, which won the Barondress uh, Lincoln Award and the Award of Achievement of the Lincoln Group of New York. The Lincoln Anthology, a Library of America collection featuring 150 years of great writers on the subject of Abraham Lincoln. And at the Indiana Historical Society, we're particularly proud that Harold was the editor of our volume of Images of Lincoln from the collections of the Indiana Historical Society. So please pick up copies of those on, on your way out and uh, our author will sign them for you. 
In addition, Harold Holzer has also written more than 425 articles over the past 35 years in both scholarly and popular publications, contributed chapters and prefaces to some 30 additional volumes. In 2008, he was awarded the National Endowment Medal by President Bush. In addition to his writing, Harold lectures throughout the nation. His program, Lincoln Seen and Heard, with actor Sam Watterson, has been staged and broadcast from such venues as the White House, the George W. H. Bush, H. W. Bush Presidential Library, the Clinton Presidential Library, the Library of Congress, and Ford's Theater. Their new program, Lincoln in American Memory, will be televised by PBS on Bill Moyers' journal this April. He also appears frequently on C-SPAN and the History Channel and has served as an on-air commentator for such Lincoln Bicentennial specials as Looking for Lincoln and Stealing Lincoln's Body. Harold Holzer served as a guest curator for a number of Lincoln art exhibitions, and he is the guest historian for this fall 2009 show, Lincoln and New York at the New York Historical Society. Finally, he is a kind, affable man who is a friend to all of those who work in the public history field. Please welcome Harold Holzer to the stage. Thank you. Thanks. I just told John that I'm, it may be hard for me to live up to the kind and affable part, but I'll try to live up to all the, the endless recitation of titles for which I'm very grateful. It's, it's wonderful to be here to, to celebrate with you um, and the American Association for State and Local History, and wonderful for me to have the opportunity to thank you for everything you do to uh, keep history alive for uh, new generations of young people and their parents and grandparents, but particularly the young people for whom um, history has to come in Twitter and tweets. I mean, I notice that you have a Twitter um, way of getting to talk to each other here. And the challenge, I guess, that we all have and will continue to have is making the, those tangible artifacts and documents of history remain relevant in an age that if it doesn't value original materials less, at least focuses on them less because of the uh, allure of technology. The, the constant, the refreshing constant for me, uh, as both a museum person like so many of you and also as a Lincoln person, is to see so many Lincoln images here um, on display. Even that little Lincoln doll that I put right in my pocket was a little startling, but... Uh, <laughs> People always ask me if I think Lincoln would have been surprised by the proliferation of his images. And I think the answer is no, because he made such an effort uh, during his lifetime to make himself available to uh, both new technologies in his day, meaning photography, and also to artists and sculptors. And there was, there's a certain irony there, because in his public remarks, he made fun of his own appearance. And he made certain that he knew, that he understood that he wasn't a very good-looking man, even as he was making sure that ameliorative efforts were being undertaken to make him look better and to spread more dignified images to, uh, to the public who would become voters and uh, later judge him in history. So he's very clever about it. But one of the stories he liked to start with when he was on a podium like this uh, is to say that um, uh, he was once riding in the woods and uh, he suddenly encountered a terribly uh, homely woman, uh, a shockingly homely woman, who um, immediately took aim at him with a large shotgun. And Lincoln said, Madam, I don't even know you. What's going on? Why are you aiming your shotgun at me? And she said, I always vowed that if I met a man uglier than I am, I would kill him on the spot. So Lincoln looked at her and said, Madam, if I'm uglier than you, then fire away. <laughs> and then he went right to the photo gallery and had a picture made. So that's, that was his cleverness to, to get a laugh and get people to understand that he was a little shy about his appearance, but at the same time get it recorded and get it out there 
sort of what we do. We take the homey artifacts of the past and make them relevant and make them attractive and interesting to, to future generations. Well, we're nearing the midpoint, or we've passed the midpoint, nearing the end, I guess, of the Lincoln Bicentennial year, although our federal activities will go on into 2010. And it's been, for me and for my fellow um, commissioners and for the general public, uh, an extraordinary experience, especially in the Lincoln states, so-called, that had stamps and, and uh, coins issued to commemorate their special role in the Lincoln story, among them um, Indiana. And um, we were very fortunate to have two uh, wonderful commissioners uh, from Indiana serving on the commission and still serving, Professor Darrell Bigham and Joan Flintspaugh, who was the CEO of the lamented, late lamented Lincoln Museum in, in Fort Wayne. Um, it's always particularly interesting to come to Indiana because Lincoln, I think, had mixed feelings about Indiana. And my, my friend Bill Bartelt has just published with the Indiana State, uh, Indiana State Historical Society Press a very, very thorough and engaging account of Lincoln's Indiana years which were always somewhat neglected. People focus on the romantic log cabin origins in Kentucky and the coming of age in Illinois and, and sort of skip the, the Hoosier experience. And by many accounts, Lincoln had what was then called a southern Indiana accent, not a Kentucky accent that he carried with him for life. Um, Indiana is where he got the meager education that perhaps embarrassed him, but which constituted the only formal schooling that he ever enjoyed, less than a year all told, in so-called blab schools where children of all ages would sit in the same room and just recite their lessons over and over again with a teacher walking around with a stick to make sure that everybody was reading at his or her proper level, and if they weren't, they got a whack with a stick, and they went back to it. Um, he saw tragedy here. He, he, he uh, uh, saw people afflicted by illness, both physical and mental. And uh, so while he had uh, warm feelings about Indiana, he also had trepidations about Indiana. And he wrote a poem about it when he was much older that went, began, I, my childhood home I see again and gladden with the view. And then I think he pondered a bit about his full response to the state and said, and still as memories crowd my brain, there's sadness in it, too. So I think very mixed emotions about, about this place. Um, but here is definitely, in this state, is where his thirst for knowledge on his own terms and with his own means first manifested itself. It's here that his stepmother introduced him to the Bible and to Aesop's fables and to where he first got a hold of Weems' Life of Washington, the book that in a way changed his life, not just because he was inspired by, as he put it, the scenes of the revolution and the, the idea that the founders had fought for, the idea that people could aspire to levels of society higher than that which they were born into. But what happened here is that he borrowed uh, a book from a local farmer and uh, took it with him to bed every night, and he slept on sort of the eaves of his log cabin, uh, there was a, a pole with pegs in it, and he scampered up into this little attic kind of a thing, a half attic. And there was a rainstorm one day, and of course the roof was inadequate, and water came in and dripped not only on the sleeping Lincoln, but on the book. And it was really, you know, damaged beyond repair or beyond hiding. And, you know, Honest Abe really was Honest Abe, and he took the book back to the farm, and the farmer said, well, you're going to have to work it off. Um, Lincoln said he did enough uh, manual labor in his life to learn to dislike it. But one thing he got out of that experience was his own copy of Weems' Life of Washington, which I think was, um, was uh, extraordinary for him. It's here that he first started reading newspapers, uh, a lifelong passion uh, for him, the means of his access to information from around this big country. I just wrote about and did wonderful research here at the Indiana Historical Society into the period newspapers. 
um, about Lincoln's um, inaugural journey through the country on, on route from Springfield, Illinois, to Washington. And I think overlooked is the experience right here in Indianapolis uh, on February 11th, 1861. Movies and plays always show that very touching speech he makes from the back of the train, I now leave not knowing when or whether ever I may return with a task before me greater than that which faced Washington. It's very, it's very lovely to be sure, but it wasn't easy in Indianapolis. Here is where he faced his really first big challenge. I mean, he gets here, it's the first city he arrives in, and there are cannon salutes. He's taken down the main street to the Bates House Hotel in a carriage drawn by four plumed white horses. Um, and then they say, why don't you, you know, address us from the balcony? And he had actually prepared something while he was posing for one of those artists that were always about in Springfield. Um, it was not a great success. He, he, you know, he, he had not spoken from the time of his election, actually from the time of his nomination, to the time that he departed from Springfield, from May 1860 to February 1861. Campaigns for president were a lot different then. The candidates stayed home and they kept their mouths shut. They weren't expected to campaign. It was frowned on. It was considered undignified. So Lincoln followed the tradition. So all eyes were on him in Indianapolis. And he gets up there and, you know, will he be coercive to the South, which has already begun, southern states have already begun seceding, or will he reach out and assure them that they have nothing to, to worry about? Well, it was the former, actually. He, um, he said that... Um, the sanctity of a state, a higher sanctity than the Federal Union, should not be respected. He, he hinted that he would defend and, if necessary, reclaim federal forts in states that had already seceded, and already all eyes were on Fort Sumter in Charleston, South Carolina. He told jokes. He said um, no matter what he said to the South, they weren't going to listen. It's like the, the, the little pills that the homeopathist prescribes for sick people, um, they think they're too big to swallow. Uh, that was actually a laugh line in 1861, but you see that humor, humor has changed. And he said, um, you know, to get, it's very hard for states to get a divorce from the Federal Union. Uh, it's, uh, the southern states would prefer it to be a free love arrangement. And that's a pretty shocking thing for a, a president-elect to say in 1861. So Lincoln then goes into a dinner at the Bates House, and he's um, not in a good mood, understandably. I think he realized that the speech was not entirely successful and that journalists were going to report that he had put his foot down and he was being rather threatening, and he still had 10 days to go on this journey and did not want more states to secede. He was worried about Virginia and North Carolina, which he felt he could still hold in the Union. So he goes to a pleasant dinner, he thought, but actually there were wonderful descriptions in the newspapers that the waiters uh, didn't bring the food and what food they brought they spilled on the guests. And Lincoln, you know, was probably irritable. It was a long journey from Springfield. And... Um, at one point, he thought, you know, I'd better work on my inaugural address, which I had printed in, uh, in had typeset in Springfield, and I was, you know, I need time to work on it every day. It should be a regimen. I've got to work on it. So he turned to his son, Robert, who, um, a 17-year-old boy who was enjoying the attention of local girls and sparkling wine he was discovering for the first time. He was a pretty sophisticated young man. He had already been to prep school he was on a, in the East, and he was on his way to Harvard uh, to start uh, as a student in Harvard. And he said to Robert, I think I'd like, I, you'd, I better get the inaugural address now that I entrusted to you. And Robert said, huh, basically. <laughs> and Lincoln reminded him that he had given him an oilskin case, a black oilskin case, and told him to guard it with his life, which he hadn't done. Robert said, well, I guess it's in with the other luggage. So Lincoln ran down the stairs of the hotel. There was a front desk, you know, like there is now, but, you know, one front desk. And he put one hand on the desk and 
vaulted with those long legs over the desk. And the next thing people saw from the other side of the, of the registration desk were bags flying up in the air and Lincoln prying open locked bags. They say that at one point he found some paper collars that people needed for shirts if they couldn't afford celluloid collars. He found whiskey flasks. He found decks of cards. And finally, he found the one grip sack that he was looking for. He had, he had discovered and saved the inaugural address. And then in front of everybody in Indianapolis, he gave his son an uncharacteristic tongue lashing that um, Robert just shrugged off and said, well, if the old man wasn't mad at me about this, he'd be mad at me about something else. <laughs> so fathers and sons. Uh, even Lincoln was not immune. But he, got a, he, he found his address. And then the next morning, his last day in Indianapolis of his life, was a rather momentous day because it was um, his birthday, first of all, his 52nd birthday, and he left for Washington, I think, more poignantly and more definitively than he had when he left Springfield. And historians don't usually recognize that. Why? Because in Springfield, all of his friends, his good friends, went with him on the train to Indianapolis. His, his wife and younger boys didn't. They were going to join him at the Indianapolis station. So, in fact, that was another reason why the leave-taking was more formal in Indianapolis than in Springfield, because he was leaving with his entire reunited family. But here, on February 12th, in the Bates House, he really said goodbye. He said goodbye to Springfield the day before, but Springfield said goodbye to him here in this town of Indianapolis. And reporters said that he was hugged by people like a hydraulic uh, machine, which is, was interesting to me because I didn't know there were hydraulic machines that you could metaf- use as a metaphor in 1861. And then his private bodyguard, Ward Hill Lamon, was the only person who stayed with him uh, and went on to Washington with him. And one of Lincoln's Springfield friends said to him, guard him with your life. And if anything happens to him, don't ever show your face in Springfield again because we'll kill you. And I don't think they were kidding either. And maybe that warning constituted the reason why Lincoln subsequently passed through Baltimore in secret en route to, uh, en route to the White House with only Lamon and his brass knuckles and pistols to protect him because there was indeed a death plot awaiting him on this inaugural journey. So those are just the reasons I'm happy to be in Indianapolis because it's so meaningful for me and I... Uh, and, and always wonderful to see John Herbst and, and um, everyone else from the Indiana uh, Historical uh, Society. And uh, yesterday at the cocktail party, I saw other Lincoln people, so I want to give a shout-out, especially since we're on C-SPAN, um, to the Abraham Lincoln Museum at Lincoln Memorial University in Harrogate, Tennessee, and to the Lincoln Cottage at the Soldiers' Home in Washington, D.C., There are so many extraordinary Lincoln museums and visiting places around the country. And to the USS Monitor Center at the Mariner's Museum in Newport News, which, of course, is not directly Lincoln-related, except if Lincoln had not had the prescience to say, let's build an ironclad, the Civil War might not have ended the way it did because the Merrimack was so ferocious and high-tech a war machine that it really needed a challenge at just the moment it got one from the little monitor, which has now been uh, brought to the surface. The turret is being restored and exhumed, and it's quite exciting. Um, All of you who work in state and local history are looking, I know, for ways uh, to make the material treasures that connect us to the past relevant for the present and the future. And it is, again, in the high-tech world, a serious challenge. Um, We're all fighting to prioritize the past at a period when the future, especially the economic future, remains perilous. It makes our jobs uh, very difficult, and um, I always look for messages that will help transcend uh, the difficulties and and solve these challenges and uh, problems. Everywhere I go... I can tell you, even in the midst of the, the ferocity of the debates that are embroiling Washington and, and um, congressional districts around the country, people want to talk about Obama and Lincoln. 
and certainly um, Barack Obama did more to uh, expand, enlarge uh, the Lincoln Bicentennial celebration than any of its commissioners or celebrants, I assure you. His focus on Lincoln has been the ballast that has lifted this entire bicentennial to, to great heights for which everybody um, is extremely grateful and, and continues to be inspired. But there are some fascinating parallels that President Obama, let's face it, especially during his campaign, was not shy about pointing out. Uh, both were unexpectedly elected. Both faced rather ferocious kind of war once they started. Lincoln, of course, the real war over secession and slavery and President Obama on health care. It's something of a war. And I don't know how Lincoln would have fared in uh, in town hall meetings uh, uh, or with the blogs and, and, uh, and 24-hour news cycles. You know, he virtually gave up public speaking, not just between the nomination and the uh, inauguration, but afterwards. Uh, great events like the Gettysburg Address were absolute rarities on his schedule. Presidents, like presidential candidates, were not required or expected to speak aloud or in public. So that, again, is uh, is something that makes uh, the Lincoln experience so much different from the Obama uh, experience. They're certainly not alike in education, as we know. President Obama went to Harvard Law School. Lincoln, uh, when his son Robert, the same son who lost his inaugural, told him he too wanted to go to Harvard Law, Lincoln said, well, you'll have – Lincoln, of course, had not gone to law school, had read the law and simply gone to start practicing. Lincoln said, well, you'll certainly learn a lot more than I ever did, but you'll have much less fun learning it. Um, both, both were either psychologically or physically abandoned by their fathers in, in their childhoods. Uh, Obama physically, Lincoln emotionally, from all we know, when Thomas Lincoln's uh, stepson sent word to Lincoln in 1851 that uh, he, that, uh, he, he was, the old man was dying and that he had called for his son to come and see him one last time, Lincoln wouldn't go. Um, he, he sent a rather harsh letter saying that it would be more painful than helpful if I were to come. He didn't attend his father's funeral. He didn't build a grave marker over his grave, even though his stepmother begged him to do it. So very tough relationship that we can't even begin to unpeel at this late date. Um, but they both, both Obama and Lincoln, enjoyed the benefits of surrogate parents who were just identified them as special young men and lavished attention on them. In Lincoln's case, it was a stepmother who brought uh, to the family cabin children of her own, but who found Lincoln, uh, Abraham, to, Lincoln to be the kindred spirit of of the of the Broaden family. Uh, he said, "His mind and mine, what little I had," she said. It's a lovely quote. His mind and mine, what little I had, seemed to run in the same channels. And she encouraged him. She urged the father not to force him to work in the fields when he could be learning. It was that kind of a thing. And Obama, I think, had the same thing with his, with his grandmother. And it's very telling that at very key moments in their lives, their pre-presidential lives, do you remember uh, candidate Obama just a few days before the election campaign was over? He went to Hawaii to bid goodbye to his grandmother because she was dying. An extraordinary thing to do a couple of days before an election. Right before he left for his inauguration, Lincoln went up uh, to the Decatur area to say goodbye to his stepmother. With all of the bad memories of their, the father's death and the grave and all of the other problems, and uh, she wasn't dying, but she embraced him and said, I know I'll never see you again. And she, he said, Ma, why do you say that? Of course I'll be back. And she said, no, I know they'll kill you. And she turned out to be right. She outlived him by, by four years. Obama was also, a, as he put it when he declared his candidacy, a, a relatively inexperienced, lanky, big-eared uh, legislator from Illinois um, who, who ultimately defeated the favorite for the nomination who happened to be a senator from New York. Um, Abraham Lincoln did exactly the same thing. The senator was not Hillary Clinton, but William Seward. Um, there's a 
the night he was elected president, it's interesting to note, um, President Obama um, reacted in Chicago by quoting one more time Abraham Lincoln as he had done when he announced his candidacy. He said, as Lincoln said to a nation far more divided than ours, we are not enemies but friends. Though, though passions may have strained, it must not break our bonds of affection. And there's double irony there because those words had been written not by Lincoln. <clears throat> excuse me, in their original form, they'd been written by that senator from New York as a suggested closing paragraph for Lincoln's uh, inaugural address. Lincoln massaged it into poetry. I'm not sure that uh, um, President Obama knew that, but uh, it... Uh, it, it came to a rather interesting duplication of a New York-inspired, uh, a New York-inspired remark. I took particular comfort and drew particular excitement, as I think all history aficionados around the country did, uh, to know that President Obama also dedicated his inaugural to Abraham Lincoln. We remember, I think, well that uh, he actually took an inaugural train. Um, from Philadelphia into Baltimore, made a public appearance in Baltimore, which Lincoln was unable to do because of the threats that awaited him, that awaited him there, and then took the train into Washington with his vice president aboard. Lincoln had traveled with his vice president from New York to Harrisburg, but then sort of dropped him for that secret journey. You may remember that uh, Obama took his oath using the very same Bible that Abraham Lincoln had used to take the oath of office in 1861. Um, too often, though, sometimes the, preci the precise truth is more interesting historically than the, the television version of the truth, um, or the television version of history. It was continuously referred to as Lincoln's Bible. But it wasn't Lincoln's Bible. Um, I don't even know if Lincoln remembered to bring a Bible. The, the excuse that was... Uh, offered at the time that his was packed doesn't make much sense because they had been living at a hotel for several weeks and one would assume that a lot of things could have been unpacked. I think we just have to accept that Lincoln did not have a Bible. So they brought the Bible from the United States Supreme Court. So I'm not sure that Supreme Court Justice Roger B. Tawney, author of the Dred Scott decision, was very happy when he looked down at the Bible um, he would have had more excuse to mess up the oath than, uh, than Justice Roberts did. <laughs> so I'm sure he felt insulted that the Bible had been used. But imagine how he would feel, and here's a good one for the 21st century, to know that Michelle Obama was holding the Bible in 2009 and Barack Obama was taking the oath, not on Lincoln's Bible, but on Roger Tawney's Bible. That's, that, to me, is more exciting. I mean, the only bad idea I think that I think the one step they took that went too far was that they decided to replicate the lunch menu that they had used for um, Abraham Lincoln's inaugural celebration in the Capitol. And I don't know, you, you probably all have in your collections, or many of you, menus from the 19th century. They are heavy, heavy meals, those the, the celebratory meals. And, you know, two senators actually had to, to be escorted out by, you know, EMS during this, uh, you know, uh, the, the late Senator Kennedy took ill during this meal, and so did Senator Byrd. So eat light, that's the 21st century um, mantra. There are also eerie similarities in the inaugural address, which I like to point to, um, never directly. It was almost like that was the, the dividing line. The day of the inaugural address, Mr. Obama stopped um, discussing Abraham Lincoln directly. But there were echoes, and I heard them. Um, Obama proposed policies that bind us together. Lincoln, in his second inaugural, pledged to bind up the nation's wounds. Obama said he was humbled by the task before us. Lincoln said he had a task greater than that which faced Washington. Obama talked of raging storms and proclaimed an end to petty grievances, recriminations, and worn-out dogmas. Lincoln said the dogmas of the quiet past are inadequate to the stormy present. Obama spoke of our better history. Lincoln spoke of the better angels of our nature and said, famously, we cannot escape history. Obama spoke of early Americans of color who had endured 
the lash of the whip. Lincoln declared that if every drop of blood drawn by the whip had to be repaid by one drawn with the sword, it was acceptable. In fact, the judgments of the Lord were true and righteous altogether. Obama ended by saying he had taken what he regarded to be a most sacred oath. Lincoln, who was sworn in after his address, the traditions were different. In Lincoln's time, the inaugural parade first, the speech second, and the oath-taking third. Uh, sort of the reverse of what we, exactly the reverse of the way it is today. Um, Lincoln reminded the South that it had no oath registered in heaven to destroy the Union while he had a sacred oath just as Obama later said, to preserve, protect, and defend it. Are there differences? Of course, of course there are differences. And I have an, a constant argument with, um, with my former boss in politics, uh, Governor Mario Cuomo, who is a great history lover. He's, he and I have worked on two Lincoln books together, but the battle that I had with him and, and actually did a a talk with him, a public talk with him about it last year, was who's got a tougher transition? Who had a tougher transition, Barack Obama or Abraham Lincoln? He believes that it's Obama because you cannot compare the press scrutiny, the relentless press scrutiny from all around the world and um, pandemic diseases, nuclear proliferation, and global crises. I mean, I, of course because it's my business, to say that Lincoln had a tougher time because you cannot govern a country if the country itself is breaking apart and declaring war on itself. But let me offer a few other reasons why this is fun and why uh, it's, uh, I think Lincoln may win out here as the guy with a tougher job. Um, he had no transition committee. He had no transition director. He had a little staff of two in an office in the State House in Illinois. Um, he really had no senior advisors. Seward, the senator whom he beat for the nomination, became an active correspondent. And, uh, but Seward also was more interested in compromise, ultimately, than Lincoln was. Um, he had newspapermen on his case, as did Lincoln. In fact, he had an embedded journalist from the New York Herald. They weren't called embedded journalists then, but it was unprecedented at the time, to have a newspaper man filing daily reports about a president-elect. Lincoln faced five vexatious ex-presidents, none of whom were particularly uh, impressed with him, and a few of whom missed an opportunity to say so. Uh, uh, Martin Van Buren, Millard Fillmore, Franklin Pierce uh, up in the Northeast, uh, James Buchanan, who was about to leave and blame the entire secession crisis on abolitionists rather than his own ineffectuality. And most of all, John Tyler, still around, not only around, but he became the president of a peace convention that was called for Washington to solve the secession crisis before Lincoln became president. Lincoln was not too appreciative of this because it was something that he, of course, wanted to handle, particularly if the peace convention gave away the store. And that is precisely what they decided to do, that is, offer an amendment to the Constitution that would have guaranteed slavery forever, banned discussion of slavery in the Congress in perpetuity, and extended the Missouri Compromise Line all the way to the Pacific, which would guarantee the creation of new slave states all the way to the West Coast. So I've always found it interesting that the delegates named Tyler, not chairman of the convention, but president, so Lincoln actually had all of these active presidents um, speaking against him and, and wondering about, uh, about his ability to manage the crisis that lay before him. Like most presidents, sadly, Lincoln faced terrible threats. And um, um, this president is no different, of course. We're grateful to... The, the incredible organization of the Secret Service now, but there was no Secret Service in Lincoln's time. For that reason, I think, he took the largest security contingent that any president had ever taken to, uh, to Washington, and it was so large that he sent some of it ahead here to Indiana because he didn't want all of them seen in Springfield. Um, he thought it would be embarrassing. He had... Um, 
general, future Civil War generals like, uh, like John Pope and David Hunter. Uh, he had a general aptly named uh, General Hazard. You know, if you're going to have trouble, you want General Hazard around. And my favorite of all these guys um, uh, is General Edwin V. Bullhead Sumner. And he got the nickname Bullhead because in an earlier war, he had been hit in the head with a bullet, which apparently bounced off his head with no effect at all. So I, I, I like to say that that's a fellow you want to walk directly in front of you. But, of course, Lincoln was taller than everybody else, and that's why he had Ward Hill Lamon, his personal bodyguard, who was also about six foot four and broader than Lincoln, so he provided good coverage. And there were others as well. And he had that, um, he had that group with him through the entire, uh, the entire journey. Comparisons and differences. But as President Obama said, uh, they're worth recollecting because, as he put it, in announcing his candidacy, Lincoln's life tells us that a different future is possible. He tells us there is power in words, power in conviction, that beneath all the differences of race and region, faith and station, we are one people. He tells us that there is power and hope. So together, let us finish the work that needs to be done and usher in a new birth of freedom, which he then made the theme of the inaugural so many, well, about a year and a month later. It's a fascinating story. And um, I got to, to participate in with the president um, on February 12th of this year uh, at two events. The first was, well, the, the main event was going to be uh, the official ceremony at a joint session of Congress inside the Capitol Dome. And um, I, we were each to speak, well, not the president, but each of the others was to speak uh, two minutes. Can you imagine um, Harry Reid, Nancy Pelosi, and all of the leaders were all going to speak for two minutes? So, of course, I wrote a four-minute speech because I knew that none of them would speak for two minutes. Um, and I had a great idea, if I do say so myself. We were gathered under the dome of the Capitol, and there's such symbolism there because it was under construction when the war began. And Lincoln said, and, and they, people, military people came to him and said, you can't spare the cast iron that this dome requires. It has to be converted to cannon and, and ammunition. And Lincoln said, no, this is too important. Let the capital go on. It is a sign that the nation will go on. So I thought that was a great, great way to speak. So the night before, we all gather at Ford's Theater for a concert. It's very exciting. The president comes in and uh, takes his place and then speaks. And he said, tomorrow we're going to be at the dome, under the dome of the capital. You know, then he said, the dome was under construction during... And right to my punchline, it's a sign that the nation has to go on. So my wife turned to me and said, well, you're going to have to write a completely different speech. And I said, no, no, I won't. This has you know, been covered by television. Tomorrow is being covered by television. Um, he's not going to give the same speech twice. So um, <laughs> the other choice is I can say, if you don't mind, don't do that again. But I couldn't. I didn't think that was appropriate. Well, we got to the U.S. Capitol, and we, we met him, and uh, it was very exciting, as you can imagine. And then um, the, speech, the speeches began. The president spoke first because he was leaving for Springfield, Illinois, for yet another Lincoln event that afternoon. And he got there, and he gave a completely different speech and an extraordinary one, as usual. And then he said, I put his pages down, and he said, I can't leave without saying how moving it is to be under the Capitol Dome. <laughs> So I did write a different speech, but I had to write it after he left. Um, probably better that he said it than, than I. Um, I want to tell one more story about the inaugural journey, which, you know, the extraordinary sight that Lincoln could never have dreamed of, of an African-American president journeying to Washington to take his oath. As, as much as Lincoln, I think, deserves the mantle of liberator, I don't think he envisioned a society that could make so much progress in, in a century and a half. Um, that's, you know, that we can debate about that, 
But Lincoln had a large inaugural party, family, as I mentioned, a doctor, uh, guards. The person who ran the inaugural journey issued a manifest and republished it for every city, trying to keep it organized. Um, by the way, this hotel is much more organized than the, the Bates House because nobody got their rooms and they all had to share rooms. And it was So hooray for this hotel. This has worked out much better. The only man who was not listed on the manifest but who went every step of the way was a man named William Johnson. He was um, a valet and he was an African-American. And in 1861, one didn't include the names of people of color uh, on a manifest that listed white people. So he was just all but anonymous, but very helpful to Lincoln, who was had so much on his mind. When Lincoln's hat got battered, he made sure he got a new one. He kept his clothes clean. When he got to Washington, Abraham Lincoln hired William Johnson for his personal staff as a valet. But the white servants at the White House objected. And they told, they made it clear to the president that it was not acceptable to have people of color working in the White House. Well, Lincoln didn't want to cast him out, but he also basically had no time and inclination to make this fight at that moment. So he called the Navy Department and he asked the Secretary of Navy to hire this man, William, as he put it, who was honest and faithful. And it was a good choice because the Navy had been integrated for many years below decks and it was the natural branch of service to which, uh, in which an African American could serve. But soon the word came back that as far as the Navy Department building was concerned, there was no room for African Americans to work. Lincoln finally found Johnson a job outdoors. He became a White House gardener. Little by little, Lincoln increased his duties until he got him back into uh, the White House as his personal aide, almost like the body person we always see with President Obama today, the person who's with him, with him all the time. In fact, on the next great train journey of Abraham Lincoln's life, William Johnson went with him, and that was the train ride to Gettysburg. He attended him at the Wills House. Again, we don't hear much about him, but he was there. And on the way back... As some of you may know, Abraham Lincoln got a terrible headache and had to lie down uh, on a bench in the train. William Johnson put a wet cloth over his head. When he got back to Washington, it was clear that he had developed a mild case of smallpox. Varioloid, it was called. Mild, but communicable enough that Abraham Lincoln took to his bed, stopped seeing people, canceled cabinet meetings, and was sick for a couple of weeks. He enjoyed it because he said, tell all the office seekers to come in now because now I have something I can give to everybody. <laughs> the, the next thing uh, we hear about William Johnson is in December of 1863, the month after Gettysburg, a notice in the newspaper that William Johnson has died of smallpox. I have no doubt that he caught it from Abraham Lincoln and that he died um, working for him as he wanted to live working for him. Abraham Lincoln had him buried in a plantation visible from the White House that had once been the property of the rebel general Robert E. Lee, talking about sticking it to the rebels uh, uh, in a way. He had William Johnson buried in Arlington, which later became a great military cemetery. And he did something that he hadn't done for his own father. He bought a tombstone, and he had it erected over the gravesite, and it's still there today uh, for all of us who are history aficionados. It might be worth going to the Arlington uh, uh, computer desk and getting a guide to find the grave marker of William Johnson that Abraham Lincoln erected, because there is the simple legend William Johnson, citizen. And that's the marker that Abraham Lincoln put up. Well, the theme of the bicentennial has been unfinished work, working to at least analyze, if not presume to complete, the unfinished work that uh, President Lincoln talked about at Gettysburg, trying to fulfill the dream of opportunity and liberty 
um, that he spoke about. And the Obama chapter, perhaps by some unexpected, was an enormous step in, in rethinking the state of the unfinished work. It's an unfinished story, to be sure, but um, it is history in the making. And with all of the comparisons that President Obama made at the beginning to, um, to Lincoln, I still think, I continue to think, that it presents an absolutely marvelous opportunity for the Bicentennial Commission on the federal level, for the state Bicentennial Commissions, for all of you who work in state and local history, to point out these vivid and dynamic connections that we can use, I think, successfully and permanently to get our audiences, especially our young audiences, to treat history as something exciting to help them understand that, like President Obama realizes, we need to use the lessons of the past to inspirit the future. It calls to mind uh, a poem that I used in the book, The Lincoln Anthology, that John mentioned in introducing me, which was a joy to to create because it included so many um, wonderful verses and prose tributes to Lincoln and criticisms. I wish I knew who wrote this. It's by an anonymous poet uh, during the Depression. And I, I sent it with the book to the president, and uh, uh, I don't think he needed particularly to hear this rhyme because it's something that he has based his administration on, not to mention his campaign. It was written during... Uh, in words that I think seem as relevant today as they were then. And in closing, I just want to share them with you. Consider the land of thine and freedom's birth. Cry out, it shall not perish from the earth. Engrave upon our hearts that holy vow. Spirit of Lincoln, thy country needs thee now. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. I'm lingering not to milk the applause, which was very nice, but because I'm told that there are microphones for anyone who wants to ask questions about Lincoln, the Bicentennial not about current politics. <laughs> there was a another... Do you want to identify yourself and your institution? My name is David Cross, and I'm with the California Historical Society. There was a, another uh, history-changing person born in February 1809, and uh, Adam Gopnik has... and It, it takes somebody who thinks like Adam Gopnik to do this, I think, has um, written a, a book that suggests parallel messages from their lives. I'd be curious about your response to that. Um, the book is called Ages and Angels, it, um, and Adam Gopnik is a, a friend of mine, and he's at, you're absolutely right, sir, he's an extraordinarily talented uh, uh, critic, and it did take someone outside of the field to take a look. And, of course, the, the, the person to whom our questioner was referring is Charles Darwin, who was born on February 12, 1809, on the other side of the ocean. Um, I think that the, the, the parallels may be a bit uh, uh, stretched. I think both of these people were revolutionaries in their way and had enormous impact with their words and their their. Um, theories about culture. I've oversimplified the connection, and I've been criticized for it, but I'll I'll do it again. Um, In some ways, Darwin talked about the survival of the fittest, about uh, natural selection, and Lincoln uh, did not believe that people were fixed in their places for life and believed in opportunity based on hard work and learning. Uh, I've oversimplified Darwin, to be sure, but but, uh, I think that's an interesting thing... uh, to, to keep separate. Well, my name is Bill Worthen from, the, uh, from Arkansas. 
I was wondering about the upcoming sesquicentennial of the Civil War, and uh, you're old enough to have lived through the uh, centennial celebration, I can I beg tell. your pardon, sir. <laughs> and I'm just wondering if you might uh, suggest uh, some ways uh, the Civil War might be celebrated uh, to greater effect in the sesquicentennial. And, of course, that's... Um beginning, uh, you know, depending on when you want to start it, uh, in, in um, 2010 with secession or April 2011 uh, with, with the Fort Sumter crisis. There is not much um, interest in Congress right now, I gather, in uh, having a commission. And um, as the co-chair of a commission with um, Senator Dick Durbin, I should have mentioned that earlier, um, for the Lincoln Bicentennial, I know that you've got to, you need the federal system behind you for, for the, if nothing else, for the, for the, um, the U.S. Mint, for the post, the Postal Service, for all the things you want to do to uh, embroider the, the, uh, the ceremony, the, the occasion and have ceremonial things that relate to currency and coins and other things that the federal government uh, controls. But because of the fiscal situation and the cost of uh, commissions, the potential cost of commissions, there hasn't been one. So it's, it's, it's ironic, but it's the states that individually are forming groups to, uh, to celebrate the, uh, the Civil War. And, of course, that invites um, sort of not uniform analyses of the causes of the war. There's a little danger there. But, you know, I think it's, it's going to stimulate a lot of uh, writing. And, and, and television productions and DVDs and all of those things. I know that those are in the works already because I've been talking to people who are producing and writing them. And all of the big names in the Civil War field, James McPherson and, uh, and others, are, are at work on books about the Civil War again to, to, to mark the occasion. And, and we know that there were over 200 Lincoln books published in these last two years. So the field is going to be ripe. But, I mean, my suggestion is still... I hope that there is some interest in forming a national commission to, to federalize the celebration. For one thing, um, one of our commissioners, Congressman Jesse Jackson, Jr. of Illinois, was a major force behind um, still controversial in some quarters mandates to the, United, to the National Park Service that all of its Civil War uh, interpreters mention slavery as the principal cause of the Civil War. Because for years, and rather you know, continuously, the many southern sites talked about uh, you know, the War of Northern Aggression and uh, uh, the manufacturing North and uh, uh, the Cavalier system of the South. And, and uh, uh, Jesse Jackson's uh, leadership here helped focus the way things should be interpreted, frankly, in my view. But if, again, if, the, if there is no federal imprimatur on the celebration, how do these interpretations work in the Deep South? And that concerns me as well. So I, I haven't offered too many solutions except the Federal Commission one, but I echo your sense of both excitement and concern about the sesquicentennial. Any others? Yes, sir. Hi, uh, my name is Alex Gates from the North Berrien. Uh, Historical Museum up in Michigan. And I was wondering, since we're in Indiana right now, if you could comment a little about uh, Schuler Colfax and his relationship with Lincoln, uh, being from South Bend. Um, Colfax, um, who ended up as Speaker of the House, wanted very much to be part of Lincoln's cabinet. And um, I guess it's worth mentioning uh, a bit um, the, the something I left out, but it gives me an opportunity. Um, and that is the, the, the fascinating team of rivals phenomenon that arose when Senator Obama chose uh, Senator Clinton. And uh, before that, um, Bill Richardson, that didn't work out. And before that, Senator Biden as his running mate. Uh, and the comparisons that were made, not by Doris Kearns Goodwin, who simply pointed out that Lincoln had named rivals to his cabinet, but by others saying that, that Obama was doing exactly as Lincoln had done. Lincoln got endless uh, correspondence from people saying, you know, appoint Colfax. He's a wonderful man. Don't appoint Colfax. He's, a, he's ridiculous. You know, he's not capable. 
And the same for every other nominee whose names were brooded about in the press for a long time. Um, so let me say, that's my Colfax comment, but again, you know, he became much more valuable uh, in his congressional role anyway. But back to the team of rivals. Here's one instance in which I think President Obama has not been given enough credit in comparison to President Lincoln. Yes, Lincoln appointed a team of rivals to his cabinet. But in those days, what was a rival? It was a someone whose name was bandied about as a presidential aspirant. Um, Seward was a favorite. Salmon Chase was a favorite. Uh, Simon Cameron, others more renowned than he. But they never debated. They never attacked each other. The campaign, such as it was, I mean, the discussions began in February with the Cooper Union speech and other Cooper Union speeches by other national leaders. And then three months later, the convention took place. And in one day, they met, they gaveled to order, they took three ballots, and Lincoln was the nominee. So rivalries ended very quickly when without much bloodshed. Clinton, Richardson, Biden, and Obama, along with others, were engaged in debate after debate after debate, attacking each other. So I think Obama deserves a sort of more credit in the press and in history than, than he's getting for the team of rivals uh, concept. He may regret the team of rivals concept, but he's, he really went uh, a, a great step beyond where Lincoln was. Uh, I'm Jim Gardner from the uh, National Museum of American History. Ah. Uh, building on uh, Bill Worthen's comment about the uh, 150th anniversary of the uh, Civil War. At the same time, we're going to have the 50th anniversaries of the uh, Civil Rights Movement, of uh, various milestones there. And we will have an African-American president uh, as we begin the celebrations of both. How do we navigate through that? Because I think this is going to be a big issue for many of our institutions in terms of, of balancing both civil war and civil rights at the same time. Well, it's, it's a very good question, and it's, it, I mean, it's intriguing. It's a big load to bear, I suppose, in strapped times. But if you're talking about the, the Second American Revolution and the Third American Revolution as the Civil War and the, and the movement of the 50s and 60s was, has often been referred to, I think it offers a really extraordinary opportunity to, 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 to link history together. Um, the difficulty, of course, and the real challenge is explaining why it took 100 years to get from the rights guaranteed in those three constitutional amendments that followed the war and into Jim Crow and the Black Codes and, and, and the, uh, the boycotts and the, and the marches of the 50s and 60s. It's, uh, that's the tough part, the, the, the period between the anniversary dates. It's a great challenge, but what you, you've got – all sorts of broadcasters here and producers. That's a great idea for, for documentaries and other teaching tools. I've been very good so far at agreeing with all of you. I don't know if I've given any great answers, but good questions. I think she's going to the microphone. Yes. I am. Good. I'm short. <laughs> Ribby Rogers from Cincinnati. As someone who studied so much of the past and participated in such a personal way with the inaugural, how optimistic are you about the future? Uh, the future of history or the future the of the future country? The future of our country. Mm. You talk about an unfair question. Well, it's a good one to end with, though. Um, you know, every, every generation writes doomsday scenarios about, the, about cultural changes that, with which they're uncomfortable and um, political fighting and, and bitterness that they find distasteful. Uh, but I'm, I'm generally optimistic. I think people who study history have to be optimistic because the, the, I'm just saying it, um, it, can't, it, it always can get worse, but that's not the point. <laughs> the point is that there are such opportunities with technology and disease control and, uh, 
and examples, you know, set by leaders and hopefully a genuine post-racial uh, generation that will survive the, you know, the, the, the Washington fighting that I wish politicians would stop complaining about. You know, and I wish every person who says, I can get past the Washington uh, insider fighting and I will not be um, engaged in this kind of disputatious activities. It's always been thus. Somehow we get things done. And um, so it's a very personal question, but since I have um, a relatively new grandson who's only two years old, um, I look to the future um, with very high hopes and uh, a great deal of excitement. And my next stop is to go back to New York and give him the Lincoln doll that you folks were nice enough to give me. <laughs> Thank you.